Uh, there are three words that parents dread. And there may be more, but there are three that I have in mind. But you promised. If you're a parent, you know how this works. You don't even remember what you said. You don't even remember the promise. But justice is being invoked against you. Maybe you're trying to get them out of the mall because you got another appointment to get to. And you hear them say, but, but you promised that we could go to the candy store or the video game store or whatever store it is that they want to go to that you don't have time to get to. Now, eventually those kids get old enough to realize that those, those two words, next time, was not a promise. It was a hostage negotiation strategy. <laughs> and you're the hostage, right? They'll eventually figure that out. But in the meantime, you're dealing with a little lawyer who understands that you entered into a contract, you made a promise, and they want to hold you to it. You know, it's amazing how much of life works on the basis of promises. We're, we make promises all the time, right? From, from marriage to, to business to politics. Of course, we know not to take those promises seriously. To, to our, our social life, yeah, I'll call you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we make promises. We make promises all the time. Now, some of those promises are real. A lot of them are, shall we say, aspirational. Something we mean to do. Sometimes, actually, I think somebody keeps a promise and we're, we're surprised <laughs> because we never expected them to. Other times, we are very much like our kids. Somebody made a promise, and we intend to hold them to it. It's a matter of justice. So what about the promises that God makes? Can we take what God says seriously when he, when he makes promises big or small to us? Can, can we actually hold him to what he said as a matter of justice. I mean, when you stop and think about it, what right would we have to hold him accountable to any of his promises anyway? Because we know, at least deep down in our hearts, that we actually haven't kept our side of the bargain. We haven't kept the promises we made to him. Well, this morning, we continue our series in Daniel, a series entitled, Who's in Charge Around Here? And we're going to learn this morning that it's the God who made promises to his people. Chapter 9, which is where we're going to be, is actually the only place in the book of Daniel where God is referred to as Yahweh, the Lord of the Covenant the Lord who entered into relationship with his people on the basis of promises. Now, as we consider Daniel's response to those promises, I want you to think about what promises God has made to you, what promises you think he's made to you. And I want you to think about your, your, your response to those promises. And what does your response tell you about your relationship with him? So turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 792. 792. Daniel chapter 9. If you're not used to getting around in a Bible, the, the, the big number on the page is the chapter number. The small numbers are the verse numbers. You're going to be helped by just keeping your Bible open because I'm going to be referring uh, to these specific verses over and over and over again through this sermon. But let me just read the first verse so we understand what the setting is. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, 
who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. All right, so that's, that's when this chapter takes place. So when is that? It's 539 BC. It is the very first year of the Persian Empire. So if you've been following along in the series, we are right in between what happened at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Now, as I explained back then when we looked at this, Darius, who's mentioned here, and Cyrus, that's the king who would give the order for the Jewish exiles to return from their exile and to go back to Jerusalem. We read about him in Ezra chapter 1. Darius and Cyrus are the same person. We're not talking about two different kings. We're talking about the same king. There's quite a bit of evidence that kings took a a, a particular name, even a title. Some people think Darius is actually a title more than it is a name in the first year of their reign, their kind of throne year. And then thereafter were referred to by whatever their, their given name was. So, so we, we think that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. And we're right there at the start of his reign, right at the beginning of the Persian Empire. And what's happening? Well, we're going to see Daniel's reading his Bible. And as Daniel's reading his Bible, he realizes that God has made a very specific promise about the exile. Now, we're going to look at that promise, and we're going to look at Daniel's response. But this isn't a history lesson. This is for you. I want you to consider your response to God's promises. Here's here's what I want to convince you of. Here's the argument that I'm going to try to make this morning. God's promises should produce expectant prayer and patient expectation. God's promises should produce in you, they should actually provoke in you, expectant prayer and patient expectation. And we're going to walk through that argument in three steps. And we're going to start with God's promises. So let me read again the first verse of Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to read the first three. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. All right, so this is where we start. Daniel is reading God's word. He's reading his Bible. Specifically, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. Now, that's fascinating in its own right because Jeremiah wrote what he wrote just 70 years earlier. So it's quite clear that the writings of the prophets were considered scripture at the time of their writing. Now, we're not told what passage in Jeremiah Daniel was reading. Things like chapter numbers and verse numbers weren't added for a long, long time. But what we are told is that from that reading, he understood that the exile was going to be 70 years. Now, that means that he was reading either Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 14, which is the letter that, which contains a record of the letter that Jeremiah sent to the very first exiles, telling them that they were going to be there for 70 years, so settle down and seek the peace and prosperity of the city that God has sent you to. Or he's reading Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 to 14, which was a prophecy about the end of the Babylonian empire. Either way, maybe he was reading both. In both places, the prophet indicates that the exile was going to be about the lifetime of a human being, 70 years. Now, we're going to look in a minute at how Daniel responds. But let's start just right here in these first few verses with what we learn about God's word. Fundamentally, the scriptures are not a record of other people's religious experiences. That's not what they are. Fundamentally, the the scriptures are not a a systematic theology or, or an ethical guidebook. 
Now, what the scriptures are, they're, they're, they're a revelation of God's promise to his people, and then a record of how he's actually kept that promise. Our God, as he's revealed in the Bible, is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. That is who he is, and that is what the scriptures reveal. Now, now this promise that, that Daniel is referring to is very specific. The exile is just gonna be 70 years. But, but, but that promise is actually part of a, of a much larger promise that God makes in the scriptures to be our God and for us to be his people. A, a promise to actually dwell with us and, and among us and even in us. A, a promise to, to forgive us of our sins and, and to bring us to be with him, not just in Palestine, actually in a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, starting in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where God promises that one day someone will come and crush the enemy's head, Satan's head. To to, to Genesis 12, where, where God promises that out of Abraham, God is going to bless the nations. To Exodus chapter three where God promises Moses that he is going to rescue his people out of Egypt and bring them to that that particular mountain where he was, Mount Sinai, to worship God and to be with God. To 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that through David, he is establishing a kingdom, a house that will never end, and that he will have a son who sits on the throne of that kingdom forever. To, to Ezekiel chapter 36 or, or Jeremiah 31, where, where God promises that he is establishing a covenant, a new covenant with his people that won't be like that old covenant that they broke, but will be a covenant that is unbreakable. That God himself will keep that covenant and place his spirit in us. To, to then Jesus showing up and, and preaching and therefore promising that in his preaching and in his person, the kingdom of God has come to his promise in Matthew 28, that even though he is going back to be with his father, he will be with his people always, even to the end of the age. To to, to Romans chapter three, where, where Paul explains the great promise of the gospel, which we're gonna talk about more in a minute to John's vision in Revelation, where he sees the fulfillment of all of God's promises and a new heavens and a new earth with God's people surrounding the throne comes into being. The word of God, the scriptures from beginning to end reveal God's promise of forgiveness of salvation and of the restoration of his redeemed humanity to dwell with him forever. That is what the Bible is, a revelation of God, our promise-making and promise-keeping God. Friend, do you want to know God? Read the Bible. Read the Bible because the Bible is his self-revelation. You, you know, when, when I was when I was dating Adrian, uh, I used to write her letters because we were far apart from each other. We weren't in the same place. And what was happening in those letters? Was I just telling her what I was doing, like giving her news from North Carolina? No. No, I was revealing myself to her. I was revealing my love to her. Well, that's, that's what's going on in the Bible. God is revealing himself to us. Do you want to know God? Then then start by reading the scriptures. If you've never done that before, we'd love to do it with you. Uh, We we love doing nothing more than setting up just Bible studies, reading one-on-one with you, reading in a small group with you, just to begin to walk through the scriptures together so that you can begin to understand who God is. Christian, do you want to grow 
in your faith? Do do you want to grow in your intimacy with God? Then, Then Christian, read your Bible and hide his word in your heart. Note his promises to you and and remember them. Turn them over in your head. Meditate on them. You, You know, you can tell a lot about a person by the promises that they make. Well, God has promised to save you. God has promised to be with you. God has promised to bring you safely home, to be with him if you are in Christ. So Christian, you are in Christ. Think about these promises. Meditate on them. And see if your love and affection for the Lord does not grow. I think so often we want to be able to have a relation with God apart from his word. But, you know, just like we think about it for a minute, uh, like, could you have a relationship with me if I never spoke to you? If you never heard what I said? No, of course not. It's the same with God. Do you want to know him? Do you want to go deeper in your relationship with him? Then spend time with him, listening to what he's saying to you. Because what he's saying to you are words of love. All right. That's a little bit of what we learn about God's promises. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's turn and think about how do we respond to God's promises? Because that's what Daniel does. And and the first thing we see is that when we encounter God's promises, our first response is expectant prayer. So that's what we're going to look at second, expectant prayer. We'll we'll pick it up again there in verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But this day, public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you've banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, that we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He's carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So Daniel has realized that the exile is about to end. And what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he he prays. But but did you notice the kind of prayer? This is not a, but you promised prayer. This is not a, a holding God's feet to the fire kind of prayer. This is not a triumphant, dare I even say, presumptuous prayer. No, it's a prayer of confession a confession of their sin. And yet at the same time, a prayer of great expectation and hope. So Daniel starts by confessing who God is and who they are. And I hope you noticed it's a contrast, right? God is the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, his promises, but we, yeah, we are not. We're not anything like that. He says, he, he actually piles up the words there in verse five to, to describe Israel's sin. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets. If that's not bad enough, he draws the contrast further. Righteousness belongs to God but public shame belongs to them. You saw that there in verse seven. You know, righteousness and shame, these are different words than the words he used there in verse five. In verse five, he's really getting at sort of their their legal guilt, all the things that they've done wrong. But now he's talking about righteousness and shame, and all of a sudden he's using relational language. That's what these two words are. They are fundamentally relational words. To be righteous is to be someone who who maintains right relationships with all those around him. Someone who gives everyone exactly what they are due. Who, Who has kind of no debt outstanding. No debt of justice. No debt of compassion. Shame is also a relational term. We often think of it in terms of relation to ourself, right? We, we feel ashamed. That, that's that, that, that feeling of, of humiliation because you're conscious that, that you've done something wrong or, or maybe that, that you've, you've been wronged in a particular way that, that leaves you feeling unworthy. Now, that can all happen internally and it can be accurate because you really could have done something wrong, or it could be inaccurate, because you didn't do anything, something was done to you. But, but public shame is different, right? Public shame is now where it's not just, I feel this way, but everyone else sees me, and they agree. I should feel humiliated. I, I, I should feel unworthy. I should feel condemned. So these are deeply relational terms. And of course, Daniel's not just talking about the worst people in Israel. You notice that he highlights there in verse 6 and again in verse 8, the leaders who did not listen to God's word, the kings, the leaders, the fathers. And isn't it interesting that Daniel includes himself? He says, we and us. Even, even though, if, I mean, if you've been following along in Daniel, Daniel is clearly like an exemplar of faith and faithfulness. And yet he identifies with his people in their sin. I think what's most poignant in this section, though, is that though shame belongs to Israel, verse 9 says, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord. 
What is the Lord known for? When, when, when people look at the Lord, what, what, what do they think of him? Well, well, they don't think he's worthy of condemnation. No, his, his reputation, what he's known for publicly is compassion and forgiveness. But Daniel's really clear. What God is known for is not something that he owes them. It's not something that they have a right to demand. No, he points out in the very next verse, verse 10, they've rebelled and disobeyed. They've broken God's law, verse 11. They've refused to turn and listen and seek God's favor, verse 13. And so Daniel acknowledges that everything that God has done in pouring out the promised curses, the promised disaster, which you can read about in the book of Deuteronomy, Everything that he has done has been righteous. They have received from the Lord what they deserved from the Lord. And friends, this is where prayer must begin when it encounters the promises of God. Not presumption. Not, not, not a bold claim that, God, this is what you owe us because you promised. Now, that's the attitude of three-year-olds towards their parents. And that's the attitude of people who don't really understand who God is. The German poet Heinrich Heine said on his deathbed, of course God will forgive. That's his job. Heinrich Heine did not know God. Now, a proper understanding of God's promises always begins with taking God's side against ourselves. Because we understand that what God owes us is justice, not mercy. Friend, if you don't know God, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking about and exploring, trying to understand what would it mean to be in a relationship with God, this is where it starts. It starts in understanding this fundamental contrast between us and God. He is righteous. We are not. And we begin by confessing that to him. But you know, Daniel's prayer doesn't stay there. It it turns in verse 15. You you see it there. Now, Lord our God. There's there's this turn and and with great expectation, but without an ounce of presumption, he pleads that God would turn his wrath away and bring them out of exile. You see that there in verse 16. Turn, may, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. He actually prays that that they would bring them out of exile just like he brought them out of Egypt before. That's that's why he references uh, God's history, that you're the God who did this. You've done this before. You brought your people out of the land of Egypt. Boldly, confidently, but not presumptuously, Daniel asks for God's blessing. There in verse 17, he asked that God's face would shine on the desolate sanctuary there in Jerusalem. And the reason that we know it's not presumptuous is the same reason that he is so bold and expectant. You see it there in verses 18 and 19. His petition is not based on their own righteousness. It's based on God's righteousness. It's based on God's compassion, he says. It's it's not for their sake, but for the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's reputation that he's making this request. Verse, verse, uh, Verse 18, listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, listen and act. 
My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So what about us? Do your prayers sound like Daniel's? Full of humble confession and bold, hopeful expectation. Or are our prayers a tad presumptuous? Do we approach God just a little bit, feeling like he owes us something? How would you know if your approach to God is a presumptuous approach? I think you're going to know like afterwards, right? When you're angry at God for not answering your prayer when you wanted it answered or the way you wanted it answered. Or maybe you'll know in the asking, because not only do you ask, but you give him a lot of directions about how he should fulfill this particular ask of yours. Or maybe it's even before you pray, because honestly, you're resentful that you have to pray about it at all. I mean, God should just take care of this. I shouldn't have to ask. Presumption demands because it thinks it deserves. Friends, that's not what our prayers should be like. No, our our prayers should, should be expectant, not presumptuous, expectant, because our prayers should understand that God not only makes and keeps promises, but every promise he's ever made to us is a promise of grace. You know what grace is? Grace is is a gift. Now, gifts, by definition, are things you don't deserve. You know what you deserve? You deserve your paycheck because you worked for it. You deserve your wages. But, But gifts are different. Gifts are things that we receive even though we didn't deserve them. Actually, couldn't deserve them. We're, we're, we're about to, you know, we're just a few weeks away from Christmas morning. How many of you are going to get up and open your presents and look at the person who gave you that present and say, yeah, about time. You, you know you should have given this to me a long time ago. I deserve this. No, that is not the way we approach gifts. We're overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness because a gift by definition is something that you don't deserve, indeed cannot deserve, because as soon as you deserve it, it's not a gift anymore. It's your wages. Every promise that God has ever made to us is a promise of grace. God doesn't owe us anything except justice. And justice demands our punishment, not our blessing. Our our condemnation, not our rescue. When, When we plead God's promises boldly and with great expectation, we do so rooted in his character, not ours, his righteousness, not our own. Friends, you'll never pray to God with that kind of bold expectation unless you know him to be the gracious, compassionate God that he is. Uh, Too many of us, including too many Christians, are walking around thinking that God is evaluating our prayers the way, I don't know, like college admission officers evaluate somebody's application to go to school or a job interview is evaluating you in an interview, that the God's up there like, you know, listening, he's glad to hear from you, but he's thinking about, like, do you deserve this? Do you, do you deserve what you're asking for? Like, like, he's, like he's evaluating us based on, on, on merit. 
I, I remember when, when God got a hold of me in college, this is exactly the way I approached him. I was like, God, please save me. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop messing around with my girlfriend. I'll read my Bible more. You see, that's me approaching God as if he's interested in any sort of merit that I can bring. Friends, that's not who God is. That's not the good news of the gospel. Christian, you must stop thinking about your God as if he were your heavenly admissions counselor, deciding whether or not you're worthy to get in. When you get rid of that image of him, your prayer life will change. I think there's a lesson here before we move on for the elders and leaders of this church too. Daniel points out more than once the, the heightened responsibility on, on the leaders to be people who are listening to God and obeying him. And, and what that means for the leaders of this church is that we should be the chief repenters in this church because none of us obey as we ought to. Brother elders, are we known for our repentance? That doesn't mean that everybody needs to know every sin we commit, but are there people in your life who know your life and, and, and that, that you're able to demonstrate repentance towards? It, it also means as leaders, we, we should be the chief obeyers in this church, the ones who are most concerned to listen to God's word and to put it into practice. This is super important because it's all too easy for us to listen to the squeaky wheel. That's not any one of you in particular, but, you know, if you are, you know. Um, are, are, are we tempted to, to, to listen to the pressure from our family? Are we tempted to listen to an internal desire for success? Well, brothers, no, we need to be the chief obeyers who are careful to listen to God's word and to put it into practice. Not because that earns us anything, but because we know we have been forgiven so much and so our response to the Lord that we wanna model for the rest of the congregation is a response of obedience motivated by love. It's also a response because we know that the health and the spiritual well-being of our congregation depends on this that we listen to God's word and obey it. God's promises revealed in his word should produce in us, should provoke in us expectant prayer, full of confession, but full of hope. But that's not all it should produce. Third, it should produce patient expectation. This is actually the third point in the sermon, but the second thing that God's promises should produce. I realize you might be confused if you were taking notes and I said third. Third point, second thing um, that, that, that God's promises should provoke in us. Patient expectation. Let's pick up Daniel 9 in verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree, 
to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Clear, right? Can we go home? No. All right, so while Daniel is praying, the angel Gabriel shows up. We've seen him before. We saw him in a previous vision, right? And we're told it's, it's about the time of the evening sacrifice when, when Gabriel, angel Gabriel shows up. And, that, and that's, of course, why Daniel's so weary. He has been wrestling in prayer all day. It's evening now. And Gabriel arrives, and he's come to explain God's answer to Daniel's prayer. It is an answer, we're told, that went out right away. And we're told why. There in verse 23, because Daniel is treasured by God. Now, now the answer is in verses 24 to 27, and we're going to get there. But before we get to the answer, an answer which are some of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the Old Testament and easily the most debated verses, maybe in the Bible. We're getting there. Before we get there, I want you to note two things. First, God answers his people's prayer. And he answers out of love. Right? Did you see that he, he treasured Daniel? And brothers and sisters, he treasures you. Now, the reason that we know that God answers our prayers out of love is because God gave us someone just like Daniel to pray for us just like Daniel did, only greater. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. You know, like Daniel, Jesus came and identified with his people's sin, even though he didn't sin. And, and like Daniel, we're, we're told in Hebrews 7.25 that, that right now, I mean, to this day, Jesus petitions the Father on our behalf. He was characterized by that in his life and his ministry, and it continues. But unlike Daniel, Jesus didn't just identify with us, and he doesn't just pray for us. He died for us. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel, that in Christ's death, God was righteous in punishing sin as it deserved, and he was righteous by justifying sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Righteous in justice, righteous in mercy, both. That, that's how Paul explains it in, in Romans chapter three. He says in verse 26, God presented him, that is Jesus, on the cross, his death. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous, that is in condemning sin and punishing it in Christ, and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cut off from God, not for his sin, but for ours. That's what it means that he identified with us. He actually took our sin upon himself. And God was pleased. God was satisfied with what Jesus did. He, he raised Jesus from the dead because indeed in his death, justice was fully served. So that now all who repent and trust in God's promise that those who put their faith in Christ can be declared not guilty. Oh, that's, friends, that, that, that's for you. That's a promise for you. That because of what Christ did, 
you can be declared not guilty. You can be declared righteous in right relationship to God through your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Jesus got up from the dead. And Jesus ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father where even now he is praying, petitioning on behalf of his people. This is why God answers our prayers. Because God loved the world. He gave his son for us. Friend, do not go to the Lord on the basis of your righteousness, on the basis of your merit, on the basis that you've been better than most, or when it all weighs up, like maybe the good in your life is 50.1%. Don't go to the Lord that way. That way is folly. No, go to the Lord through Christ, who died for you, who is even now praying for all of his people, that they would be forgiven, that they would be reconciled to God, and that they would be with him forever. You can do that right now. You, you don't have to like sign a card or walk down the aisle or raise your hand. Right where you're sitting, you can pray that God would forgive you not because of your righteous acts, but because of his. And you can be confident that God will hear that prayer. He will answer that prayer. That Jesus is even praying for that prayer at this moment. Now, if you prayed that prayer, come tell me afterwards because I want to talk to you about what the next steps are. But don't leave today without asking God to forgive you because of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. That's the first thing that I want to notice before we get to these confusing verses. The second thing I want us to see is that Gabriel came to give Daniel and us understanding. You see that there in verse 22? He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. Now, I want to be really clear. We're going to dive into this, and one wonders what Gabriel had in mind when he said, oh, I'm going to make everything clear to you, and then he, he gives them these verses. But I do think that needs to be the way we approach this. I'm not going to answer every question you have. Uh, there, there are a lot of ink spilled on these verses. But these verses, confusing as they may seem, are actually given for our understanding. Now, what we're going to see is that as it turns out, God's answer to Daniel's prayer is bigger than Daniel thought, and it's going to take longer than Daniel thought. We also need to realize that, that understanding something isn't the same as knowing everything about it. I understand that electricity makes these lights come on. But I can't explain to you how electricity works. I like skipped physics class, right? But I don't need to know all the details about electricity to understand that when you flip the switch, the lights come on. So, so we need to bring that kind of attitude to what we're gonna see here. Gabriel's answer comes in the form of apocalyptic language. It's actually described as a vision, an apocalyptic vision. So this is apocalyptic. This is not a newspaper account, right? We're at the movies, not the library. If you were here for the Revelation series, I kind of pressed that home. That's what the apocalyptic imagery is. It's, it's a series of kind of quickly changing images that give us kind of the, the big picture of what's going on, but not necessarily all the details. So as we come to these verses and any kind of apocalyptic language, you need to understand that we are in the position of kids who ask their parents where babies come from. 
And what do parents do? Well, good parents will give their kids kind of the big picture. And they will spare them the specifics. That's kind of where we are as we come into these verses. Gabriel starts with the big picture, verse 24. He says it will be 70 weeks. And actually, it's literally 70 sevens. 70 sevens until Daniel's prayer is answered. You see, the, the, the answer to Daniel's prayer is not just a return of the exiles to Jerusalem. Gabriel lists six things here in verse 24 that will happen by the end of these 77s. And when you pay close attention to them, you realize it's nothing less than the consummation of all of God's purposes for history, an end to sin, and the establishment of everlasting righteousness. And Gabriel says it's going to be 70 weeks, 77s, until we get to the consummation of all things. Now, I understand some take these weeks, these sevens, to be literal years, which would make this 490 years. But I, but I think actually we're better off taking these numbers as symbolic, not literal. That is typical for apocalyptic. Apocalyptic trades in symbols. And, and honestly, when we think about it that way, we begin to realize that, that what Gabriel is doing is he's, he's drawing on the imagery of the year of Jubilee, which came after 49 years in Leviticus 25. So, so what is he saying here? Well, he, he's describing this extraordinary Jubilee that's going to come, not in 49 sevens, but seven times seven times 10. It's like, Daniel, the the ultimate jubilee is coming. But it's going to be a while. It's going to actually be a fairly long way off. So while the 70 years of exile are about to end, He's letting Daniel know up front, God's people are going to have to be patient. There's a lot of history still to come. Now, beginning in verse 25, Gabriel explains how God is going to work out history until it lands us at the the very end, the consummation of all things and the establishment of everlasting righteousness. He starts there in verse 25 with the decree that Cyrus is about to issue to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And beginning at that point, he divides the 77s that are to come into three groups. There's the seven sevens, and then there's the 62 sevens, and then there's a final seven. Now, those seven sevens, that's the period in in which it's clear, he says, that that Jerusalem is going to be restored and rebuilt. But but then there are going to be these 62 sevens that follow, and they're going to be marked by really difficult times. You see that there at the end of verse 25. And, And then at the end of those 62 sevens, so now we're at 69 sevens, there's a, there's a final seven. And at that point, the anointed one, the ruler is going to appear. And, and, and we're told kind of what's going to happen then uh, af- after he appears in this final seven. And it, and it begins in verse 26. In the last seven, a whole bunch of stuff is going to happen. In the last seven, the anointed one who came, the ruler, is going to be cut off and left with nothing. The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. There are going to be wars and desolations. You see all of that there in verse 26. But, but at the same time, the, like a, a firm covenant is going to be made with many. Don't know what that's about. And then in the middle of the week, sacrifices and offerings are going to be stopped, and the abomination of desolation is going to be on the wing of the temple. Now, I think actually abomination of desolation, that word abomination in the Old Testament always refers to idolatry. And we see this 
We've seen this earlier in Daniel. We're going to see it again in Revelation. In some way or another, uh, someone or some ones will be bringing in idolatry to, 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 to corrupt the worship of God's people if they could. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be great difficulty until finally we're told that the end will come like a flood. You see that there in the middle of verse 26. The, the, the desolator himself, the one who is trying to corrupt God's people and bring in this idolatry will be destroyed, we're told, there at the end of verse 27. And then finally, everlasting righteousness, where he started, will be established. All right, so a lot of ink has been spilled trying to map Cyrus's decree in 538 BC and the coming of Christ and his crucifixion around 30 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, a lot of people have tried to map all of that onto a literal 490-year period that actually corresponds to history, what we know happened in history. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work. No one has successfully done it. Now, that doesn't surprise me, because I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I think from the beginning, we were supposed to take these numbers as symbols. And when we do, we actually gain some understanding. Daniel is told, basically, that there is going to be a relatively short but definite period of time, seven sevens, in which God's people and God's worship are going to be restored in Jerusalem. And it would be easy for them to think, great, we're back in Jerusalem, the temple's rebuilt and everything's restored, and so the kingdom of God's coming, right? No. No, because after those seven sevens, there are going to be 62 sevens, a long time that's going to be characterized by a lot of difficulty before the Messiah appears. Oh, but, but at the end, finally, of those 62 sevens, the Messiah appears, and then the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness, right? No. There's one final seven, we're told. What the Bible calls the last days. And we're told in these verses what's going to happen in the last days. The Messiah will be cut off. Jerusalem destroyed. There will be wars and desolations. There will be religious persecution and rampant idolatry. And yet, during that same time, that last seven, a covenant is going to be established with many. And partway through that time, sacrifices will cease until the end comes with a flood and the Antichrist is destroyed. And all of that happens in the last seven. Now, friends, I'm here to tell you that that is exactly what happened and is happening. The temple was rebuilt, but the Jews suffered under one empire after another a long 62 weeks. We saw how that it was partially fulfilled last week in the coming of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who persecuted the Jews terribly. But after centuries of waiting, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, appeared. And with his appearing, ushered in the final week, the final seven of history. And yet, just as Gabriel predicts, he was cut off, crucified by the Romans, who destroyed the sanctuary and the city, Titus Vespasianus destroyed the temple and the city in 70 AD. He erected idols in the temple, a partial fulfillment for sure. But at the same time, according to Jesus, his shed blood was the blood of the new covenant, a new promise. And what he says in Matthew 26 is that his blood was poured out for many, for the, for the forgiveness of sins. That's that same word that we see there in verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Isaiah is going to use the same language in Isaiah 53. Jesus will use the same language in Mark 10 when he talks about giving his life as a ransom for many. With his sacrifice, there is no need for sacrifices anymore. Sacrifice and offerings come to an end. And indeed, with Titus's destruction, 
of the temple, they do fully come to an end. But they needed to. The book of Hebrews declares, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It brought all other sacrifices to a stop. That's precisely what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. This this meal that we're about to eat is not a sacrifice. It's a feast that looks back to the perfect sacrifice that ended all sacrifices and looks forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God when we celebrate that feast with Jesus himself. And what does all that mean for us? What understanding does this give us? It means we're living in the last days. It means we are living in the final seven. I I would argue that we, in fact, are living in the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And many antichrists have already come. And John warns us in 1 John 2 that many are still to come. But as sure as Jesus came the first time at the end of those long 62 weeks of waiting, we are confident that Jesus will come again at the end of this one short week. How long is that week? I have no idea. Peter reminds us, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. Length of time was not the understanding that Gabriel was sent to give. No, the understanding that Gabriel gives Daniel and that I think he gives us is that God's answer to Daniel's prayer is so much bigger than he dreamed. Not just an ethnic people in Palestine, but the universal kingdom of God under the reign and rule of Messiah, who is King Jesus. And yet that answer was going to take a long time to unfold. As the images shift, sort of like a dream sequence in a movie, we see a partial fulfillment here and a partial fulfillment there over and over and over again, and yet we know there is more to come. And so we are patient. We are patient. God may be slow, but he is never late. Amen? He decreed 70 sevens, not 71. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are in the last half of the last seven. Brothers and sisters, the time is short. And when the time is complete, The kingdom of God will arrive, and it will arrive without our help. It will arrive like a flood, suddenly, catching everybody by surprise. And on that day, the evil will be no more. The desolator, the ultimate and final desolator, Satan himself, will be destroyed, and everlasting righteousness will reign. Ours is a patient expectation. What what did Jesus say? When you see these things begin to take place, and brothers and sisters, they have already begun to take place, what do we do? He says, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Oh, we are patient, but it is a patient expectation. That's what Advent is all about. We're here celebrating Advent, but Advent is not just a time to remember that Christ came. It is to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming again. And I think as Daniel makes clear here, there is nothing more apocalyptic than Christmas because Christmas ushered in the last week. The last seven began when Jesus, the anointed one, the ruler appeared. You're not used to thinking about Christmas and the book of Revelation at the same time, are you? But I hope you never forget to do that again. Christmas was the inauguration of the final week of history. How do we respond, Christian, when we know that a promise is about to be kept? Isn't it the way we respond in the days leading up to Christmas itself? With joy, with, with, with hope, with, with, with anticipation? 
I mean, yes, we're patient because I can't make the days go faster, but it's a kind of barely constrained patience because I can't wait for Christmas Day to get here. Brothers and sisters, that should be every day of our lives. Joy, hope, anticipation, a patient expectation that the best day of your life is almost here. The day Jesus comes back. We don't have long to wait as the Lord counts days. Now, as we count days, who knows? But as he counts days, it's almost here. We know we're in the second half, to use a sports analogy. It may be that the two-minute warning has already sounded. We don't know. What we know is that no matter how many antichrists appear, no matter how much opposition and difficulty we face, that with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, nothing is left to happen but his return. And so what do we do? We pray expectantly. And we patiently expect with great joy Jesus Christ's return. We pray, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's do that now. Let's pray together. Take a moment and just try to identify where you're approaching the Lord with presumption rather than faith and confess that to him. Lord Jesus, You came the first time to save us. And our hope and all of our expectation is that wasn't just an aspirational promise on your part, that you meant it, that you proved it by going to the cross, that you guaranteed it by getting up from the dead, And so, Lord, as we hope in you, as we depend upon you for our salvation, we now pray with confidence, with boldness, with every fiber of our being. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come, our long-expected Savior. And we pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.